And let's pray. Almighty Father, we're thankful uh, for your word that was just read. We're thankful for your work uh, through Todd's life and among us here. And we're thankful that um, he's going to proclaim the gospel up there. And we pray that you would please bless his efforts. We ask that the gospel would continue to bear fruit all over Australia. Uh, we, we plead with you that more and more people would come to know Jesus uh, and the salvation that is found only in him. And we pray for us tonight as we come to your word that you'd please uh, help us to understand it, to be moved by it, to have our lives shaped by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 15 years ago, uh, when I became a Christian, uh, I had my whole uh, life turned upside down and I entered into what felt like a world of contradictions, uh, a, whole, a whole paradox uh, that, that kept coming at me in, in multiple waves, a world of paradoxes, where everything that I had thought had been forward turned out to be backwards, everything I thought was up turned out to be down. Becoming a Christian was like having my whole framework of thinking about life itself completely inverted. Uh, things like the way I viewed God. Now, I hadn't thought much about God, really, uh, but if I, the way I acted, at least, said that I thought God was there to serve me. He existed for my sake, uh, He's there to answer my prayers, and coming to the Bible was to find out that, um, actually, God is God and I'm His creature. Uh, I've been made by Him, not so that He could serve me, but so that I could live for Him and for His glory. If He should choose to answer my prayers, that's His prerogative. If He should choose not to, that's He's God, not me. Uh, the way I thought about the purpose of life, now I was an 18-year-old, so I hadn't really thought much about the purpose of life, um, but I lived as though the purpose of life was about me and my own fulfilment. Just do the things that are going to feel right and good for me and fill up my life and my time. And then the Bible comes along and it says, life's not about you, Dan. Life's not about your own happiness. Life is about the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. Live to love God and to love others. That's what life's about. The way I thought about greatness. You know, what, what, what is great? What makes someone great? Surely it's competence and um, success and people saying, well done, you're great and adoration and, and the Bible comes along, Jesus comes along and says, if you want to be truly great, you've got to be a slave of all. You've got to be the person who gets down dirty and washes other people's feet, puts other people before yourselves. And of course, the cross. The thing that to me looked like utter defeat and weakness which turns out to be the power of God for salvation that, that the whole world needs, where sin, Satan and death are defeated through the sin-bearing death of the Son of God. A world of paradoxes. Becoming a Christian for me was like getting red-pilled. Do you know that phrase? Getting red-pilled? It's taken obviously from the Matrix, where Neo, he's get, he gets the choice, you can either take the blue pill and everything you've just learned about life, how everything's backwards, you can forget about that and go back to living in the, a lie, or you can take the red pill and you can continue to have your eyes opened and to see how backwards life has been, how you've thought, have your whole world turned upside down. For many, becoming a Christian, myself included, was like getting red-pilled, to find out that everything I thought was back to front. And tonight's passage contains another one of those red pill moments, another paradox. 
that seems completely backwards and contradictory, but when you get it, is deeply wise and good and true. And the paradox here is that to be truly strong, you've got to be a weakling. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Paul says, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's the paradox. Real strength is only found in weakness. So everybody, stop feeling guilty about your dusty dumbbells in the cupboard, it's all good, you can stop feeling that shame, turns out if you want to be strong, you've got to be a lightweight. No, that's not what Paul's talking about, if only he was talking about that, I'd feel better about myself. Uh, The Apostle Paul's not talking about physical strength, he's talking about spiritual strength. It's not like um, being a physical weakling somehow makes you impressive, it's not that. He's talking about spiritual strength here. That spiritual strength comes through the weakness of suffering and hardship and a lack of personal resources, mentally, emotionally, physically. Now, how could this be? How could it be that a person can only be strong in life only if they're weak, only when they're lacking? Well, that's what we're going to look at tonight as we dive into this chapter together. And we're going to find this out as we see the Apostle Paul apply this paradoxical theology about weakness and strength into a very particular situation, a very particular situation about how you evaluate Christian leaders, what makes for a strong Christian leader versus a weak one. See, the Corinthians needed to be red-pilled on this stuff. The Corinthians needed their eyes open to the right way of evaluating spiritual strength when it came to Christian leadership. Because as it stood, they were in danger of being led astray from Christ. Because they were thinking about their Christian leaders with the entirely wrong framework. They were looking to these blokes who were presenting themselves as impressive and strong and eloquent and having had spiritual power and they were looking to them as men who they should follow and listen to. But in reality, they were spiritually bankrupt, they were spiritual weaklings. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to work through this passage and as we do that, my hope is that we'll get red-pilled too. That we'll, we'll have, as we see Paul reshape their thinking about spiritual strength, that we'll have our framework reshaped and set right. And what we're going to see is that this paradoxical teaching about strength and weakness, it reaches out further than just Christian leadership. The the immediate presenting issue here is how you think about Christian leaders, but this teaching, it it flows into so much more than just that, because it's a whole framework of thinking by which we get to see Christian life rightly through. Christian leaders, yes, we'll think, we'll learn how to think about them rightly, but suffering, how we think about suffering, how we engage with it, how we deal with it, how we deal with unanswered prayer, how we think about God's purposes in this world and in through suffering, how we think about failure in life, how you think about success in life. All this stuff will be impacted and shaped by a good grasp of this paradox. 
And so that's my goal for us, to help us grasp deeply this principle about strength and weakness and apply it particularly to us in a couple of ways and Lord willing to leave us encouraged so that we know how to deal with, with weakness in our lives, how to see spiritual strength right, that we might even say like Paul, for Christ's sake I can even delight in weakness. So let's do that, let's dive into the passage, let's see what it says. Verse 1, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now you remember in chapter 11, Paul's engaged in this reverse boasting. Throughout chapter 11, he's done this backwards thing where he's listed how much he's suffered for the Corinthians and in his ministry as a servant of Jesus. Have you seen the movie Eight Mile? The Eminem movie? It's very old now, but um, he does, uh, Eminem does this at the end of the movie and it's how he wins. You know, the rap battle, the way you win a rap battle is by boasting about how good you are and tearing the other person down and Eminem clues into this and so the final one is, he just tears himself down, he says about how terrible his life is and he leaves the other guy speechless. Paul's sort of been doing that, although the Corinthians so far are not impressed. Um, He's engaged in this weird reverse boasting thing, saying, you know, I've been in danger here and I'm weak like this and I got lowered down a wall and look how pathetic I am. But he's done this, chapter 11 verse 12, in order to cut the ground from under the super apostles. These false teachers, these blokes who by worldly standards were impressive men, eloquent speeches, probably performers of miracles and they'd won the Corinthians' favour by showing themselves to be how awesome, by boasting about these things. Look how good we are, look at the spiritual things we can do, look at our accomplishments, listen to the beauty, the beauty in my speech and so they'd listen to their teaching about Jesus. But Paul, he sees this happening and he, he knows two things, he knows these guys are bad news and the Corinthians don't think rightly about strength. And so they're in danger of being led astray. And so for the sake of them, Paul enters into their game and he starts boasting, but only about his weakness, showing that it's his hardships which were the mark of a faithful servant. But here, he starts doing something a bit different. Verse 1, he goes on boasting, but he goes on to something which seems impressive, which actually is an incredibly impressive story. He reveals to them this spiritual revelation thing, which he could have used as a trump card, as a, you think they're spiritually impressive? Well, check this out, bam, look how good I am. He could have used it like that, but he doesn't use it like that. Straight after explaining this great vision thing he had, he again talks about his weakness. But let's dive into the vision, verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Paul here speaks about a man in Christ but it's apparent from the following verses that he's talking about himself. Have a look at verse 6, uh, although he, he doesn't want to boast about this, he could because it's true, this thing is true, you don't boast about what someone else has seen. 
verse 6 and 7, he refrained from speaking about this because he, he doesn't want to elevate himself because of this thing, based off these visions. And most clearly, verse 7, it's because of these great revelations that he ends up getting this thorn. God gives him a thorn because of these great revelations. And so, Paul is talking about himself here, but he's so squirmish about boasting that even as he speaks about an event that really did happen to himself, he can't do it. He, he says, I'll talk about a man in Christ. But I think more than that, Paul is just, he's so pastorally concerned for the Corinthians, he knows that they're judging Christian leaders based off impressive stuff and so he does anything he can at any moment he can to not encourage that. So he can downplay his own impressiveness. He only wants to be known by them as a man in Christ. Boil it down, that's all he is. I'm just a guy who trusts in Jesus. But let me tell you about this impressive thing so I can talk about weakness again. And so even as he shares the most high and lofty spiritual experience that a human could possibly have and being drawn up to paradise, even there, he's, he's still downplaying himself. He won't even use his own name for the sake of the Corinthians. Now, briefly, uh, you, saw, you saw there in verse 2, the third heaven, this place that he gets caught up to. What's the third heaven? What's with that? Are there multiple levels of heaven, like in a video game, and you've got to pass through stage one to get to stage two, and if you get to pass stage two, you get to God? Um, no, I don't think heaven's like a video game. One suggestion I've heard, which I, I find quite persuasive, is that there was a Jewish framework of thinking about heaven as though there are three layers, and I think it stems back to Genesis 1. So, in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. But then, as that's unpacked throughout chapter 1, the heavens that He creates were, first of all, the sky, where the birds fly. The second heavens He creates were the space where the sun and the moon and the stars are, i.e. space. And so, what would the third heaven be? The third heaven is spiritual heaven. Heaven, <laughs> what we think of as heaven, the place where God is. So that seems pretty um, persuasive to me. But the, the, what, he's, what he's done is he's saying, um, I've gone to where God was. The point was he was drawn into the presence of God. Where in verse 4, he heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. A truly great, impressive spiritual experience. But notice what Paul says next, although he could have boasted about this to win their favour, he refuses to do so, because to do so would reinforce their backwards framework. And so, in verse 5, he says, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than what is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to evaluate him in the same way they're evaluating the super apostles. He doesn't want them to go, oh wow, you've had spiritual experiences, now we think you're great, we'll start listening to you again. That doesn't solve any issue. Their framework for thinking is still back to front, they're still worldly. 
Rather, he says he only wants to be evaluated based on what he does and what he says, his conduct, his, the faithfulness of his ministry and words. Now, as interesting as the vision and the third heaven is, I actually think the next part of the text is where it gets really interesting, but it's worth pausing here and applying this to us for a second. Beware the person who tells you about their spiritual experiences, who tells you about visions and revelations from the Lord they've had. Because even if it's true, even if God has done some unusual thing for them, the effect of sharing that with you will rarely be helpful for you spiritually. Notice that at the end of his writing, at the time of Paul writing this, this was 14 years after he had this experience, 14 years later. Now, the thing about this is, Paul had spent a year and a half of his life with these guys. He's the one who took the Gospel of Jesus to them, He's the one who was their like, church planner man and he stayed there with them for a year and a half. More than that, he's, he's, you know, he's moved on but he sent multiple letters to them. This is probably letter number three and only now is he revealing to them, hey guys, 14 years ago I was taken up into heaven. Um, why would he hold this information back? Why only now is he sharing this? Well, first of all, uh, the vision was so great, verse 4, he wasn't permitted to tell anything by God, so there's a good reason not to share it. But second, it wouldn't have helped the Corinthians to know this, because they were still worldly. They were looking for impressive stuff like this, for validation that Paul was legit. But Paul says, I don't want you judging me like that. I don't want you to, I want you to judge me on my conduct, my words, my actions, my godliness. But the danger of judging someone according to visions, their, their actions and their words can be all out of whack with the gospel. But, but if someone's brought a vision, it feels like you have to agree with it and go with it. Even if their words and everything else and conduct is out of step with Jesus, if they come saying, Jacob, I've had a vision from the Lord, you need to give me your car. God says, give me your car. Now, what's Jacob going to do? It's, I've created, what I've done is create an unhelpful authority structure where I've essentially put myself in the place of God. God says this, do it. And it doesn't matter what the rest of my life is like, if I've had a word from the Lord, who's he to disagree? Who's he to not give me his car? Paul doesn't want them thinking like that. And for us, don't judge someone's spiritual authenticity based on visions from the Lord. It's very unhelpful. Sharing visions creates an unhelpful authority where you have to agree with the person. But Paul doesn't want us to think like that. He wants us to judge based on our faithfulness to Jesus our conduct, our words, how we handle the Bible. Now, it's likely these super apostles did that kind of thing, where they may have had visions and revelations themselves, and so they they say, well, look, look, you should listen to us and the things we say, because look at the things we've had. And yet, Paul said in chapter 11, they're teaching a different Jesus. And so, because they listen to the vision and revelation and they're impressed, they end up 
in danger of being led astray. And so for us, if you're impressed spiritually by the unusual, if that's a thing that you chase after, you've got to be very careful. The person who's eager to share that stuff with you is likely not a Christian you should be listening to. I think this next part of our passage is where it gets really interesting. So far, Paul's taken them to the highest of all heights, the most impressive thing a human could possibly experience, a revelation from heaven being drawn into the very throne room of the glory of God Himself. And now in His incredible pastoral wisdom, He takes them from the highest of heights straight to the lowest of lows, to the weakness of suffering that plagues His life and ministry. Pick it up in verse 7 again. Halfway through seven. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. From the highest of heights, to the lowest of lows, from heaven itself straight into the hands of Satan, from some possibly out-of-body spiritual experience straight into bodily unending pain, straight from the heights of a roof down onto the concrete. Now, I want to get to why he does this, why he moves from the high straight to the low but there's just so much here in what he's said that let's just unpack these verses briefly What's the thorn in his side? What's, what's with that? There's been lots of suggestions about what the thorn could have been. It could have been some psychological disorder. Uh, we know it could have been depression, anxiety. We know that he, he dealt with anxiety. He talked about that. He deals daily with the anxiety he feels for the churches. It could have been um, such that it crippled him and made him feel discouraged and unable to go on. Some have suggested that. Some have suggested physical illness, um, something, you know, bodily that's made him sick and unable to stride on forward with great strength and confidence. We know from Galatians 4, he, he seems to have possibly had some sort of eye thing going on, maybe he needed glasses and didn't have them. Um, some have suggested persistent sin in his life that humbled him and crippled his confidence to share. But Paul doesn't tell us what it is. We know from Galatians 4, he did suffer illness, so maybe it was that, but he just doesn't tell us. He just says, a thorn in my side, uses the metaphor. It's not a literal thorn in his side, we know that much. It seems to be a metaphor. At the end of the day, he doesn't tell us. What we do know is, it caused him significant suffering and discouragement, a message from Satan to torment him, and he pleaded with the Lord to take it away from him. And did you notice there as well that... that the, the combined work or the, the work of both God and Satan in the one thing. Did you notice that? You see this phenomena occur regularly in the Bible because of who God is. Because God is God and the creator of all things, there aren't things that God is not part of. He, he's over and above all things and yet there is this, this um, spiritual evil, Satan, and God and Satan can be at work in the one event. God always for good and Satan for evil. 
like in the cross, the Father sends the Son to come to earth to die on the cross to save and yet Satan was involved in that too, wasn't he? He enters into Judas so that Judas will betray him, so that Jesus will die on the cross and yet Satan is always is defeated and God smashes him by the cross. Another great paradox, irony. We see here that um, verse 7, God is the one who brought the thorn into Paul's life because the thorn comes in in order to keep him from becoming conceited. God brings this pain for good, the good of, of humility and yet at the same time, Satan uses it to torment Paul, uh, to, to discourage him. And yet it's the message from God that prevails in Paul's life which didn't mean that God took the thorn away. Three times Paul prays, Lord, take this away and the answer comes back to him, no. Not because God's cruel to Paul but because he was using it for his good, to keep him from being proud and arrogant, conceited, boastful about his great spiritual experience and because God's grace was all he needed. God's grace was sufficient for Paul, verse 9, sufficient for him for his life, to to trust Jesus and to honour Him, sufficient for his ministry. He didn't need to be an eloquent speaker, he didn't need to have all this, I don't know, all this power in and of himself, he had everything he needed in God and so God answers no. Now, do you know what it's like to have your prayers answered no? It doesn't mean that your Father in Heaven doesn't care. It might be because He cares that He says no. Paul says all this stuff to the Corinthians. He tells them about this stuff. He finally tells them about the spiritual experience from 14 years ago, caught up into Heaven. And then instantly after, he tells them about the thorn in his side that he received because of the great height of his spiritual experience, that this thorn, it was necessary because of how great the height of his spiritual experience. Now, why does he do all that? Why does he finally tell them and why does he tell them about the thorn? Why does he tell them that God didn't answer his prayers? Do you want to follow a pastor who God's not answering their prayers or at least saying no to? Why does Paul say all this? Was to red pill them, to turn their, their whole thinking about strength and weakness on its head, to show them that God was really at work, not in the pomp and the power and the triumph of the super apostles, but in the weakness of the suffering apostle, the one who was like Jesus. See, it was not Paul's spiritual experiences that made him strong, it was his weakness that made him strong. The impressiveness and the glory of his visions and revelations from the Lord, those things would have ruined Paul. Left alone, Paul would have been disqualified perhaps, he would have become conceited, proud and arrogant and boastful like the super apostles. This is what happened to them, you know, not just visions, we're not given a great, you know, lots of detail about the the super apostles, but visions, if they had those, but all of their competence, their skill, 
they'd learnt the art of speaking properly. I don't even know what that would have been like, but obviously I haven't learnt it, but um, they'd learn all this high performance skill stuff and it went to their head and it ruined them. Because what they should have done is seen themselves as weak servants, totally dependent on God and yet they depended on themselves where they should have relied on the sufficiency of the grace and power of God at work in their lives, they relied on themselves. Their whole framework for thinking was backward and it made them spiritual weaklings. Strong in the eyes of the world, impressive, people you should follow. But when Paul looks at them, they're nothing. When in God's eyes, they were proud and arrogant, they were self-reliant and so weak spiritually weak and so Paul, Paul has this spiritual experience unmatched by any other, he refuses to speak about it for 14 years, only bringing it up now so he can talk about the thorn in his flesh. See, if Paul was going to be truly strong, spiritually strong, he needed to be weak, he needed to learn that the Lord's grace was sufficient for him, that's all he needed for his godliness, for his effectiveness in ministry, it's all he needed. God's grace was sufficient. This is what I think it means in verse 9 by um, his power being perfected through weakness, not that God's power was only pretty good but it could do some work and so it gets perfected through Paul, but rather that it gets shown to be and and, um, expressed in all its glory by working through a weakling in a worldly sense, like Paul. God is seen to be as strong as He really is. When you take an apostle with bad eyes and he's always getting kicked and he's getting whipped all the time and lowered in baskets and and yet the gospel was bearing fruit, people were coming to bend the knee to Jesus all over the world through this weakling. How strong must God be? Praise God. The thorn, the thorn was Paul's red pill because not only did it save him from becoming arrogant, it opened his eyes to this glorious paradox that when I am weak, then I am strong. I depend on God then. And so he responds in two ways. Did you notice that Paul stopped praying about the thorn to be removed? He prayed three times and then he stops. He he, He accepts it. It's quite striking, isn't it? He accepts the thorn because he knew that through my weakness, I'll be in the right spiritual position before God and that makes me strong. But more than that, he doesn't just accept it, he embraces it. Verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, I'm glad for the thorn, I delight in insults and hardships, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So, thank you, Lord, for the thorn. Paul now sees the world in a whole new way. His weakness is what drives him to God, to rely on God and not himself, and that is spiritual strength. It would be spiritual weakness and immaturity to go through life depending on himself, not recognising that anything good that's produced by Him is actually just God, 
not thanking God and being grateful to God for anything good in his life, for breath and everything else, not turning urgently to God in prayer every day, not relying on him to produce anything good, that would be weakness. But to be, to, to be weak physically, to be weak psychologically, to be weak emotionally, such that I have to turn to God and pray to Him. To have broken wrists, so you realize, I can't do anything. All I can do is sit in this bed and pray. Could you, could you drink soup? I don't think we got clear on that. Um, that's where you get spiritually strong. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian message. Only when you're weak can you be strong. It's so upside down to how we think about stuff. It's so not naturally how we go. It's not what the world teaches us. But when you get it, it reshapes so much of your thinking. And it can, um, it can encourage you and give you a sense of relief. Oh, it's okay that I'm a weakling in a bunch of ways. We're all weaklings in a bunch of ways, aren't we? The Bible's message tonight says that it's okay. You can be weak in a bunch of ways because if you're not, you're likely going to be boastful and arrogant and actually a spiritual weakling, trusting in yourself and not God. When we are weak, then we are strong. Before we just think about a couple of ways this applies to us, I want to um, try and help us to, to drink deeply of this lesson that Paul got. And so I want to give you some, some live examples of a few other Christians. We've wonderfully heard from James's example tonight, but let me give you a few others, a few other examples. I know a man in Christ who's fair, and I'm not talking about myself, okay? I'm just, I'm just using that, that phrase. I, I really am not. Um, I know a man in Christ whose family is at the moment enduring significant hardship. This man's family is struggling. I'm not going to go into the details. He doesn't go to this church. Um, but his life is significantly harder now because of the circumstances in, upon them and he feels weak because of it. But I asked him whether it has changed the way he prays and he says, absolutely. He's now driven to prayer. He's now urgently pleading with the Lord where before this thing came into his life, he could just breeze through life it's Monday, just get up and go to work. But now, because he loves his family and they're suffering, he, he has to pray. And so he's dependent on God. Now, did that make him strong or weak? Well, it made him weak in a bunch of ways. But when I'm weak, then I'm strong. More than that, it's clarified for him what really matters in life. What really matters to him now is that his family knows Jesus, that they have hope for eternity. This man's struggles have made him strong in the Lord, weak in every other way, but strong in the way that it matters. When I am weak, then I am strong. I know another man in Christ who deals daily with the ongoing consequences of his past sins. Broken family, and all the ongoing hurt that will just carry on from that for all his days. He's repentant of his sin, but sin has its consequences and they're ongoing and irreversible. 
Now, this man testifies that nothing else has driven him to depend on God like his own weakness in his flesh and sin. In fact, it is, it's those sins and the reality of that that drove him to Jesus in the first place and brought him every spiritual blessing in Christ. His spiritual weakness, his sin, meant that he looked to the Saviour. And now, because he is broken by it and weak by it, he must depend on God each day. God, help me to keep living in line with your purposes now. Now, he wasn't praying like that before. He wasn't living like that. But now he's living for God's glory. Because when he is weak, now he is strong. Tim Keller, some of you will know the American pastor and author Tim Keller. He died a month ago or so um, from pancreatic cancer. But listen to what Keller said he went through multiple stages in his cancer, and, um, but listen uh, to one point where he reflected on, on what the cancer did for him and his wife spiritually. He said, my wife and I would never go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life we had before the cancer, never. We would never want to go back to the kind of spiritual life we had before the cancer. When I am weak then I am strong. And final live one, the story of the Lord Jesus Himself. Where Paul had a vision from heaven and was brought down by his thorn, the Lord Jesus came from heaven and was brought low, made as a human, yes, but brought low by a crown of thorns, by three thorns, one through each hand and one through His feet. And finally, a spear through his heart. And the Lord Jesus, like Paul here, the Lord Jesus pleaded with the Lord, with God his Father, three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And yet it was the weakness of his death and humiliation on a cross that is the power of God for salvation. And so after praying three times, he accepts... He embraces and He goes to the cross for us. Because the Lord Jesus was weak, now we are strong. Friends, learn to see the world through this paradox and trust the Lord with your weaknesses. Let me apply this to us quickly in a bunch of ways. Um, Embrace your weaknesses. Whatever thorn it is that you bear, the Lord wants you to be strong in Him. That's what He wants for you, which might look like weakness in the eyes of the world, that's okay. It's only when you're weak that you'll be strong. If you are suffering, don't be misled to think that God's abandoned you or displeased by you. It may very well be His grace to you that you are going through that. If you're dealing with deep insecurity, if you're feeling um, humanly weak, and resentful because of that, feeling like you need to prove yourself and perform and be competent and fit in and um, that might be the worldliness of the Corinthian thinking about strength and weakness. You know, I'll be acceptable when I'm strong enough and competent enough, I'll be acceptable when I'm good enough, I'll be acceptable when I'm attractive enough or when I look the part enough. It's only when you embrace this paradox that you'll rest secure (laughs) that you'll be okay with your weaknesses, that it's all right, that you'll be able to laugh at yourself, 
You'll be able to take criticism and not be crushed. Embrace it. When you're weak, you'll be strong. Does your prayer, what does your prayer life say about your strength or your weakness? Do you pray lots, humbly dependent on God for all things? Or does your prayer life show that you think you're pretty all right, pretty strong? Two more things really quickly, then I'm done. Be careful of the Christian leader or just any Christian who talks up their own impressiveness and strength. Be, be careful of the person who wants to share openly with your visions and don't be taken advantage of. The leader who says, look at this wonderful thing God's done in my life. If you want to have that happen to you, you should do what I do, you should follow me. Beware of that person. Uh, look, you, what you want is the weak apostle, not the super apostle, because it's the one who was weak that God was working through. And finally, if you're feeling strong, that could be evidence that you're far from God, that you're trusting in yourself. Don't trust in yourself. We're all weaklings. Not only are we creatures who are just rightly dependent on God for all things, we're broken, sinful creatures who deeply need forgiveness. Don't rest in your own competence. Don't live your life for your own glory, fulfillment, your own happiness. Life's all about the glory of God. It's so much better. It's so much better to live for His glory, to be able to go, yeah, I am broken, but the Lord Jesus loved me and gave His life for me. I'm accepted. Now, Lord, help me live for Your glory, weakling that I am, because when we're weak, then we are strong. Let's give thanks for that, hey? Father, might we become like Paul, who for Christ's sake can even delight in his weaknesses, knowing that our weaknesses keep us from becoming conceited, keep us from becoming spiritual weaklings who trust in ourselves, who think we're all that. Father, help us to trust You in the midst of weakness, in the midst of suffering, knowing that You're our good Heavenly Father, who may even be using our pain for our good. Might we all know that Your grace is sufficient for us, that Your power is made perfect in weakness, and might our weaknesses show the glory of God all the more clearly and keep us from being boastful, for when we are weak, then we are strong. Amen.